The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 38 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is my good friend, Rashid Williams. Rashid has been the drummer for pop and R&B great John Legend for over 15 years. He's also the drummer, longtime drummer and MD for Jill Scott. He's most recently appeared on a live record for Chromeo, a bunch of other projects in the works. Most notably, he's got his own band. It's the Rashid Williams and the LFJ Orchestra. So this is an episode where we talk about everything from diversifying uh, in the pandemic and what he had to do to just keep his career going, getting back to playing live, the new band, but various other projects. Of course, we talk about his gear, his Mapex kit, and his recent change of cymbal companies. So let's get to it, Rashid Williams. Man, how did it feel to get back on the road after all that time off? <laughs> it was, it was, that's a great first question. Uh, it was partially scary because, you know, they I think they oversold us all the possibilities on purpose. Uh, I think they, they reminded us of three times a day, like, yo, man, this could all end if too many people start testing positive. It can slow down heavily if one person tests positive because then you have to do all these different things to make sure it didn't spread. So uh, it was very scary at times. And then I think when we got like midway through and like we got the system down and our testing days are our testing days and everybody's been safe. Uh, it was exciting, actually. It was, it was the, it's kind of felt like the first time. Like, yeah, very, right. like that rush of excitement when you're like, oh man, we're actually playing shows for real people. <laughs> like, <laughs> was it like riding a bike or you had to kind of dust it off a bit? I had to dust it off, man. I mean, uh, those who were with me know, but, you know, my secret is I couldn't sleep in the bunk. I can't sleep in tour bunks anymore. Um, it was one of those things where I was like, how did I do this for so many years? <laughs> and then you get back to it and it's like, okay, the shows are the shows. That's drums. I can all day. I'm good. Uh, but the life surrounding the tour was like, oh, man. I forgot what a bunk felt like. I forgot, you know, what it was like to have all these long drives. And, you know, it was just, I couldn't do it. I was like, I'll just hang out in the front lounge. But other than that, I was good. I was, Wait, so you didn't sleep? I slept. I just, like, grabbed my blanket and a pillow and commandeered the front lounge sofa. <laughs> and, you know, but, I mean, luckily, I work with really great people. So if they woke up, there's a up, he must not be able to sleep in the bunk. So you know, they understood fully, but yeah, I, I made do the best I could. That's pretty wild. I haven't heard that one yet. So is this is this kind of making everyone rethink what touring is? I mean, is it going to be less touring? I mean, what do you what do you kind of predict is going to happen? I mean, I predict that touring will. I mean, I, I always believe everything comes full circle, right? So I think that eventually we'll get back to where we were. I think it'll be you know second nature to get on the tour bus and, and go and go and go. It'll be second nature for large gatherings. People won't be scared anymore. However, my hope is that musicians rethink it. I hope that we all understand that after COVID, man, you know, we thought we were untouchable. Entertainment business, we're like, you know, nothing can touch us. We will forever be good and do our job. Hopefully we all realize that, you know, it's not, it's not the case. It can be taken away like that. So uh, my hope is that Folks rethink it and it changes the face of touring, at least. Uh, we realize the sacrifice that it takes to leave home, the sacrifice that it takes to go city to city in such a fast pace, um, and the wear and tear of our bodies, you know, what we have to do to stay healthy. Uh, that's my hope, you know what I'm saying? I highly doubt that everybody's just going to be so excited as it keeps happening that, uh, you know, folks will forget about it. But, yeah, I mean, hopefully we all just catch on to the fact that touring isn't everything. Uh when it's here, it's great. And when it's gone, it sucks. So you have to find other things to keep you busy and keep the money rolling. So yeah. How did you diversify during all this time? Uh, well, a few ways. Um, I'm actually sitting in my very disheveled studio space at home now, um, which was not here pre-COVID. Uh, okay. This was just a bedroom pre-COVID. It was an extra bedroom that we had that was like 
didn't have any furniture in it. And we were like, oh, you know, we'll just leave it empty until something comes up or until we have a reason to put some stuff in it. Uh, I was on tour when COVID hit, so I came home very abruptly off of the road and immediately kind of had some foresight and was like, you know, I need to start getting some other things rolling. So first thing, folks, was build the studio space out uh, so that I could record nonstop. Um, so that was number one. My recording chops have gone up a million. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, in this small space, and without it being fully treated like a full-blown studio, you know, I had to learn on the fly. So everything, my techniques have gotten better. Uh, but the thing is, and by techniques, I mean like miking techniques, everything, room techniques, how to which way should the drums face the whole nine. Um, but uh, outside of that, I got pretty slightly deep for a while into stocks and investing. Um, that was one level of diversification. And I was like, ah, this is something I can do every day. Um, creative diversity came through. I bought a really great camera at the top of COVID and was like, I'm going to just go outside and make sure I'm out in nature taking pictures. So I actually became a decent photographer out of this. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's some of my pictures hanging up in some people's houses now, which is very interesting to me at times. Uh, but yeah, man, it was one of those things where I literally reached in my bag of tricks and was like, what can I do? Um, I started a band through, through COVID cause I was like, I want to be creative, but you know, when stuff started opening back up slowly, I was like, okay, so the recording thing worked, the photography thing kind of worked indirectly. I didn't mean for it to go as well as it did. The stocks and investments was a great thing for the time that I was into it and really deep into it. Um, and then it was like, I need something else that I can do to take me out of only being drummer Rashid and take me into more musician Rashid. So I started a band and I was like, you know, let's play some shows, which we've been doing. Uh, and that was another level of diversification that I had never thought about had it not been for, you know, all the COVID night. Man, you're a smart man. The idea of getting out in public and then making that a creative endeavor and, and just taking some photos, that's smart. Because I know a lot of us just hunkered down, like not fear the outside. Man, I tell you what, I was sitting down on the sofa one day and it was like a light bulb went off because the biggest thing was being creative. That was my biggest thing. How can I remain creative in a time where my main creative outlet was touring? It was, yeah. you know, being on the road. And now there is no road. And at this point, keep in mind, you know, we had no foresight of when it was going to come back. It was like, this could be gone for six months. It could be gone for six years. We don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so what ended up happening, it was like light bulb went off and I was like, oh, great. What are some ways I can be creative? Um, the first thing I thought of was photography because I love beautiful sites. I love finding cool things to, to remember and capture. So, yeah, the photography thing was probably my favorite part of it all. It was like you know, learning about lenses and all these different things and really taking it serious too, man. It was, it was quite, it was quite interesting. It's funny because I was in Philadelphia and I have never uh, even thought to take pictures in Philly because I grew up in that area, but because I don't live there anymore, I was visiting my folks in Jersey and I went to Philly with my camera and my tripod. And I was one of those weird people that set up the camera and tripod in the middle of the street. Of that course. I used to like scream at out of my window, like get out of the street. I was that guy, but um, it really gave me a whole different perspective of the city and any city that I was shooting, man. So, yeah, the the, the photography thing got got pretty cool. That's cool. So, did you go like nerdy, like studying it, or just take the camera out and start pointing, shooting, and figure it out on the fly? A little bit of both. Uh, I would try to figure some stuff out on the fly, and then like you know, depth effect stuff when you're shooting manually. Because I didn't want to do automatic because I was like, this will get old really fast if I just let automatic focus take over. Um, so I started shooting manually. And when pictures would come out a little funky, I would just jump on YouTube and just look at what other photographers were doing and what they were sharing on YouTube about like how they shoot and the depth effect aspects and the lighting aspects and you know what you want to make sure is very present versus not present. What's the best sunlight versus... You know, do you want to catch it in the evening when the sun's going down? Like all these different things. 
Um, and it was super helpful. Thank God for YouTube. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Man, tell me about the band. First of all, how'd you find the member? Where are you now? I live I live in Florida now. I'm in Orlando. Okay. Um, so I moved here like late 2018, which nobody knew. Uh, and it was cool because I didn't do it for, for music. I did it for life. Mm. It life move. This has nothing to do with my professional world. Um, and it's been a great life move. I've been happy ever since. And still, I still travel back very often. But um, I'm in Florida now. So it's so funny, man, how inspiration works in the time of crisis. Um, so COVID hit. We're all home for at least, I think everybody spent at least a year of like no real work. Um, and we were doing little stuff with John Legend, little like travel to LA for 10 days. We got to quarantine for a few, and you got to do the quarantine some more. But um, once the year, like one full circle year, from like March to March, right? Um, in 2021, I went to a Mike Mitchell, Black Dynamite. I went to one of his shows. It was like his first tour out of COVID, and he came to Orlando. So of course, you know, we were just so happy. <laughs> we were like, oh my God, you're traveling. I live here. We got a link. So I go to his show and it was so crazy because it going to his show, um, it was so inspiring. And Mike has always been inspiring to me personally. One, because he's like a brother to me. Two, he's an incredible musician. Uh, not just drummer, but like full-blown musician. So I went to his show and after the show, we were talking and I looked at him and I was like, yo, I think you just inspired me to start a band, bro. And he was like, word. I'm like, yo, man, because you're actually working and it's that aspect of being able to take control of your own situation, you know, rather than waiting for an artist to be ready. Because, you know, the artists, they're at home in their beautiful homes and mansions. And we're out here like, no, we need the drug. We need the drug. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's crazy because after that, I immediately went to work, man. I immediately started like doing these little pop-up spotty jam sessions around Orlando. And I would call different musicians that were recommended to me until I found guys that I was like, okay, these are the guys that I want to play with consistently. And then I just, I took them all to breakfast because <laughs> people like food. Um, so I took them all to breakfast and I just laid it out. I said, listen, man, you know, I want to create an environment where we can be bold and honest and just create what we want to play. I don't want to be a cover band. Uh, I want to be a band that has freedom in every single aspect of what we do that can control our own destiny, that can say, hey, man, you know, we want to play shows and we don't want to play shows. Whichever one it is, we choose. And we can create a following. We can create some level of income we can create just this freedom space of creativity so that's literally what we did man it took off really fast uh i went into super grind mode last march april and started doing these pop-up jam sessions and creative sessions to the point where by may uh promoters were telling me like yo man you need a name your band needs a name and then we get the LFJ Orchestra. Next thing you know, we are a whole band that plays shows. Wow. <laughs> so did these did the band start as strangers or were, were there any connections that you would know uh, people? A few interesting connections. So the, my bass player is a guy named Danny Saint. Uh, years ago, like when I say years, I'm talking, I'm 35 now. So let's go back to when I was like 14, 15. Uh, there used to be uh, sheds in Willingboro, New Jersey called Selah. And uh, it was at a church, and this is where all the guys, Boots, Banky, Daryl Robinson, all the three guys, would come over the bridge, and we would, like, legitimately have these uh, jam sessions. Um, Danny was from North Jersey. He is from North, excuse me, from North Jersey and has been in Florida for about 13 years. But back then, Danny used to go to all the Selah sheds. So when I saw him out here, I was like, yo, what are you doing here? He was like, yo, I've been here for 13 years. <laughs> so immediately he became my favorite bass player. It was like, yo, you know where I come from and I know where you come from. So we can relate on so much. So yeah, he got slotted in first. He was the first guy. 
Um, another band member, a keyboard player, was actually the musical director and keyboard player of the first group I ever played for when I was 13 years old. Um, also in Willingville, New Jersey. So I remember, like, I was in his wedding. And I remember him moving here to Florida years and years and years ago. And, uh, like, we were trying to link up. So finally, after COVID, like, I had already been here. And we just could not get the time. So after COVID, finally, I'm like, yo, man, you got to come by the house. You got to link up. So he comes over and I was like, okay, this was all a, a plot and a scheme to get you here. Because what I really want you to do is join my band. And he was like, it was so funny because he was like, are you serious? I was like, I'm so serious. <laughs> he left that day saying, I'll let you know. He was like, because you did all this, just to get here, I'll let you know. And literally pulled off and like four minutes later, you know, he texted me, I'm in. And, you know, those were my first two solid guys. The other guys were all fresh meat to me. It was like guys that I had met here on the scene. And I was like, oh, man, you know, if you ever want to be part of a band, let me know. We're doing some pretty cool things and kind of growing together and, and taking this journey together. And before you knew it, I, I had a whole band. <laughs> it was wild. Cool, you know, it was, it was a really cool experience. So what is... What's the writing process then? Is everybody bringing out ideas or are you the primary writer? Uh, I would say I am the primary writer, but everybody does bring ideas. Um, mm. I, so in COVID, I actually did finish an album that has yet to see the light of day, but it will uh, probably this year. Um, you know, it was, it was a really crazy time and I wanted to document it. I wanted to make sure that I expounded on what I was actually feeling COVID, because at that point in time, it wasn't just COVID that was happening. It was all these different riots and, and protests. It was so much going on. And being here in Florida made it even more interesting because it was, you know, I'm not used to this environment and I had to kind of adapt really fast. So I did a whole album based on that, just on my own feelings. So some of the tunes that we play are from that album. Um, and then other things are things that we might have done in one of the jam sessions before band life actually started. Um, and we would just kind of take those things and make them into song formats. And then every time we rehearse, you know, one of the guys or a couple of the guys are coming with an idea that, Hey man, here's something that I've been working on. You know, what do you think about putting this into our repertoire of what we do? And uh, yeah, so we can easily do 90 minutes now. It's really interesting to think that after starting from the beginning, you know what I mean? Where it's like, all right, guys, we got one tune and we're going to jam the rest. And then from then it became like, we got six tunes and we're going to jam the rest. <laughs> now it's more like very little jamming, more just vamping out of, you know, certain arrangements. And uh, we got plenty of songs to play, so we just play them all and people love it. Crazy. How do you, what's the, the genre? How would you describe it? Uh, this is going to be very interesting coming from me, uh, but it is very punk rock meets funk, uh, meets film score. It's the most interesting thing. I think we make people do everything from mosh pit to cry, to laugh, to just dance, uh, or break your neck as they say with the head. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy thing because, you know, people laugh when I try to tell them, like, yo, you know, come out to one of our shows. I'm like, well, what is it? And I'm like, well, some people are going to mosh pit. Some people are going to cry. Some people are like, whatever. And then they come, and then that big area of the floor starts opening up. So that the mosh pit gets started, they're like, this is crazy. And then next thing you know, you feel like you're in Minneapolis because we're playing some funk. And then before you know it, we're closing out with the emotions and folks are crying. <laughs> so a little bit, a little bit of everything. Is there any singing or is it instrumental? Not yet. There's no singing yet. That's something that we've been discussing, uh, adding. I, it's funny. I sent a text message to everybody. I was like, all right, who wants a microphone next show? <laughs> and everybody's just, not me, not me. I don't want to sing. And I'm, so uh, I've been experimenting with some sounds for myself and, you know, speaking with some other really great artists here, some great singers here uh, that are willing to come on and kind of feature and be a part of what we're doing. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's gonna be some singing soon. You know what I mean? It's it's all kind of coming together slowly. Now, do you foresee this 
you know, breaking out of, of Orlando and being a touring thing, or is it going to be a local project for when you're home? Uh, I don't know, man. I think when I first started it and first like saw it, right? Like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I saw it as a local project just to stay busy working and playing drums and playing music. And then I think the more I look at how the potential has grown and the more like folks at some of the really big festivals here, the indie artist festivals here, uh, they're already like, yo, we want you guys to come. And I'm like, wow, you know what I mean? So the more, you know how it goes, the more buzz gets created, the more I start thinking like, hmm, maybe, maybe we could make this into you know so i think in the next month or so we're going to start working on this album for the band exclusive album you know for the band uh and i guess we'll see what happens after that (laughs) you know it's like kind of one day at a time and and as long as we're having fun we're we're good with it so do you what's your do you write on keys or guitar i mean what is what's your background as a beyond drumming so mostly keys uh I played keyboards in my dad's church from like age 12 to like my twenties. Okay. Um, most people would never know that. Uh, Cause it's not something that, you know, was ever meant to be talked about. Um, but uh, I've always been heavily attracted to film scoring. It's one of my favorite things to do is listen to film scores for movies that I love. Um, and some movies that I don't really like, but the film score kind of makes me a little more interested in it. Um, so from a young age, I was never the guy to really make beat. As they say, I was never the guy to really be like, yo, man, let me get with this artist and and if I can get a placement, you know, that wasn't really it. I was the guy that was like, I want to do this string arrangement. So I'm trying to find the best string VST, (laughs) you know, so that I can uh, have the most real sound. And uh, eventually, once I started finding my sound more, um, for a while, I was a composer for Cirque du Soleil for two years, um, and I would submit to them often. Um, a lot of it got picked up, too. But, um, you know, keys was the primary thing of being able to play and, like, really compose something that made sense. Um, eventually, you know how it goes. You can't find musicians in your, in your home studio. You're bound to pick up a guitar, pick up a bass, kind of start fiddling around and learning some things to make it make sense so guitar thank you too for that because i did tons of youtube lessons for guitar <laughs> um so that i could you know really do some stuff that i was hearing and and really get some really great music going so music background i played saxophone in elementary which was great to help me understand horn arrangements uh keys for more than half of my life in church uh, guitar for a big portion of my life and bass for a big portion of my life at home in the studio. Um, and, you know, I'm a drummer, so, you know, my my, my undercover dream is to play bass for a show real life. I don't know what it is, but, yeah, so I got a few other instruments. In that's, so that's, I think that's the secret. I, I just was talking to um, Jonathan Blake about that, and he studied violin and piano before he played drums it's like your dad set you off right because that's the key right you get the drums last you got to learn your theory (laughs) and your ear training our drums last like if you want to do anything else do it all do everything else learn the sheet music learn the reading learn the writing the composing then become a drummer Mm -hmm. if you do drums first you may not ever touch anything else yeah that's what happened to me. It was so I got so wrapped up in the technique of playing drums. It's like, oh, I'll learn bass eventually. And here I, I mean, am in my 40s. <laughs> an incredible drummer, so <laughs> it all paid off somehow. <laughs> Man, you got to tell me about um, the tour kit. First of all, when you guys locked down, did all of your gear just get locked in cases and you didn't see it for a year? Or did it go home with you? Uh, a bunch of it came here. Uh, like, like I said, I was very fortunate to, to be extremely proactive. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, I mean, like I came home on a whim. I think I spent three days barbecuing out back, like just every day cooking on the grill in shorts and sandals. You know what I'm saying? And finally, after that three days, I was like, okay, time to get to work. 
and immediately hit up uh, the production manager like, hey, man, could you have my case of shit to my house so that I could get all my gear? I called my companies and immediately started reaching out and saying, hey, man, what can we do about microphones? What can we do about mic stands and this, this and that? Uh, me and Sweetwater got really close. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started having all my gear shipped. The tour kit that I just recently used was brand new right before the tour, actually. Um, and you know, that was one of those things where it was, you know, colors had to be a thing and whatever. So that kit was brand new right before tour, but, uh, this red pieces of red kit, um, that came in COVID that came like, you know, one of those take a very dangerous flight to Mapex's headquarters and, and do a shoot on a drum kit and the kit came back with me. Um, and then I still had my stuff in my cases if I needed anything for backup. But yeah, man, I, I literally, within the first week, was on the phone and emails like, hey, please have all my cases sent directly to my doorstep so that I can have gear and I can see what else I need and really get this whole space going so that it would be, you know, a good enough quality sound that I could send it to major musical directors or, you know, major producers and nobody would know that it came from a bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who were your your first connections for recording? Was it people that you met on tour, or you know, what were the connections? Uh, a lot of tour connections, a lot of tour networking. Um, of course, the first thing everybody did was went to my best do these virtual performances, and it's crazy to say because I think the first one that I did with John Legend, we faked it, wasn't even playing for real. Um, it was like downstairs on like this one blank wall right next to my kitchen. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I had my wife holding the camera for me. Crazy. Um, <laughs> well, like, you know, we, we may do in that regard, but once uh, once we got past that, um, the first stuff was starting to... So, John's musical director, uh, Eugene Manman Roberts, great guy, excellent musical director, and a great friend, like a brother to me. Um, he got really proactive early. He was like, yo... Let's start recording versions of everything so that when John needs something, like we can immediately pull it from the archive and get it to him. Um, so that was the first stuff I started recording. Um, from there, all of my friends are producers. So I started just putting the word out to guys like, yo, I'm recording at home. If you need drums on anything, get at me. So my homie Jamar Jones would hit me up. My homie, uh, Dwayne Wright, D-Dub, he would hit me up. Like, a lot of people would just start reaching out, saying, hey, man, I'm working on this at home because I got nothing else to do. Uh, one of my good friends, a guy named Ron King Jr., just released his album uh, maybe a few days ago. Um, and I'm on that for a few songs because, same deal, he hit me up during the whole quarantine and was like, yo, man, are you able to record? And I'm like, most definitely. And I've known him since we were teenagers. So, you know, it was a little bit of every aspect where people started saying, let's just see if I can get somebody to cut these drums. And luckily, a lot of folks dialed my number. So I was able to do everything from virtual performances for people to recording for albums to, you know, once artists started getting back into the swing of doing shows but didn't want to, like, take the chance with a traveling band, I was recording show dats at home for a lot of artists. So, you know, the joke is that I've been on tour the whole time. <laughs> Wait, you got to explain that a bit. What does that mean? So if they go, if that just performs solo with a track or something yeah. like that? Artists like Sweetie, the Weedy, as they say, uh, she, uh, you know, her first performances were just her and dancers. Um, and, you know, the, like I say, the joke is that I've been on tour with them the whole time. Uh, Man Man also is her musical director. And he hit me up, of course. He's like, yo, man, I know you got the setup. I know you got the sound. I need the sweetie stuff cut. And I was like, oh, dude, send it over. Like, So we took maybe like three or four days to get her whole entire show fully drum tracked, the whole nine. Um, so, yeah, Show Dads is basically uh, the track that artists perform behind or in front of um, when they don't have a band, but there is live instrumentation in the music, mm-hmm. not just the electronics that they use in the studio or just the studio recordings. This is like, it sounds like there's a band behind the stage. Um, but I was 
in my room at home and everybody else was recording their parts from in their studio spaces at home. Um, so yeah, man, it's funny because we did SNL with Sweetie and you know, when I met her, I was like, Oh, Hey, so nice to meet you. And she's like, Oh my God, thank you so much for being here. Such a sweetheart. And, and man, man looks at her and goes, well, he's technically been on tour with us the whole time. Oh, you're the guy that did all that. I was like, yeah, I'm the drummer that played on all your stuff. So you've heard me play countless times at this point, (laughs) you know, this is just the first time we get to, you know, face to face meet. And we're talking, this is eight months after I had done the stuff. So yeah, it was, it kind of all came full circle in that regard. Is that a standard thing for artists to do to have that prepared? Or was this a, a COVID necessity? I think it was a COVID necessity. I think some artists, when they're new, you know, they cut back on budget and they say, well, it's really expensive to take a full band with hotels and salaries and tour bus space and all that good stuff. Um, so some artists do say, you know, it's easier we can just pay these guys one lump sum up front to get them to record themselves so that we get the live feel, but we take it everywhere we go. Um I think that it's, of course, going to be more common now because folks see that you can get away with not having the full production thing going on uh, like we learned in COVID, you know. You don't have to have a 10-piece band everywhere you go. Uh, Now, does it make it better? Yes, it makes it 10 times better. But, you know, some artists are literally like, well, I can just go me and a few of my dancers some lighting effects and, and the show will be great. And you still get the live instrumentation because I have these folks recording for me. Oh man, we got to hurry up with the holograms. Now the dancers won't be needed. <laughs> oh, you know, it's technology and, and we have to be open to it. Back to what I said in terms of like, we cannot get comfortable <laughs> thinking right. that it's going to work forever. It doesn't work like that. We have to find other avenues and other streams of income and just other ways to do what we love. And uh, I think I think COVID was a good gut check in, in that regard. Man, I was just watching uh, Australian Open and they don't have line judges anymore. I'm like, because of COVID, I'm like, I don't know if they'll ever come back. That job might have just disappeared forever. And yeah. how does that parallel with art and music? No, it's not necessary. It's like people who can work from home, right? Like, why go into an office when you just spent Two years working from home yeah. and nothing went lacking. Like your job was done to the highest level. And then you have companies saying, well, why are we paying for a lease on office space? If everybody can wake up and just walk to their at home desk or office and still get the job done. So I think a lot of folks are realizing what's a true necessity versus what we just been doing because it's routine for us to do. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Yeah, interesting times. So tell me about the new tour kit. Is this going to be the kit that carries on for future runs? Yeah, so that's our kit, uh, the white one that I just took out. Uh, that was the Mapex Saturn Evolution. Great drums. Great, great drums. Um, the best they've had yet, which I think is great. Um, but, yo, those are the drums that I'm taking to Vegas for our residency this year. Those are the drums that will be on tour in between the residency. Um, those, that, that's definitely my go-to right now. What is the, um, the configuration? Uh, that kit is uh, three up, two down. So the times, the amount of time, frack times are... Uh, 8, 10, and 12, and then the floor times are 14, 16, uh, which is a 22-inch uh, kick drum. I'm playing uh, two snares, uh, one 6.5 by 14, and my second snare was actually a little interesting. My second snare was a 7 by 14 this tour. That might be the one thing I decide to switch out. Mm. 
just because I think snares are a drummer's fun spot. You know what I'm saying? Like, the drums are always going to be the, the solid setup. The snares are the ones where we're like, ah, I want to play with a different snare. Um, and then, uh, of course, rolling electronics. I always trigger my kit drum and my snares so I can sample all the, uh, the album sounds if necessary. Um, and then now, all Sabian symbols, which is really great. Um, I played for Splashes for the first time in how long? <laughs> in 10 to 12 years. I Bring them back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, the configuration has been really fun to play. It's just like an eight inch time. I haven't taken an eight inch time on tour in a really long time. Uh, maybe even 10 years there, you know? So this is, this setup was tailor fit to what the tour was. It was the mixture of pop and soul uh, with John's music going both ways. And you know, it, it really did good. I was really proud of, of the drums that me and my, my drums at Benji my guy, uh, I was really proud of what we chose to. Are you um, really oh, cognizant of like how the these the samples layer on top of the, the acoustic sound? Like, does that affect your tuning or dampening or drum head choice or all that kind of stuff? To some extent, yeah. I think every drummer has their go tos. Um, you know, for me, I've been able to be part of situations that always give me a massive list of needs and, and, you know, possibilities and options. Um, but it, thankfully I've been able to create a sound that kind of goes across the board and the sampling is actually what makes it direct for the artist. Right. So I have my sound that is just my drums. That's going to be, you know, with, with my kits, they're always a hybrid shell. The wood is always going to be something mixed with walnut whether it's maple walnut, birch walnut. Um, my heads on times, I love hydraulic heads on times. Um, and I love uh, resonant. The resonant heads uh, fluctuate depending on the size of the drum. I tend to go thicker resonant heads on the four times and thinner on the rack times. Um, and snares, I always play the HD dry with the vent holes. That's like my number one go-to. Um, and, you know, somebody's going to say, oh, well, that's just a normal setup. And I'm like, yeah, and so you take the fact that I'm also layering some of these sampled album sounds over top of that, and that's what makes it unique to the artist, you know what I'm saying? And then on the songs that don't have samples, you get the actual Rashid sound, which is, you know, pretty cool to be able to say that I do have a sound and I've taken the time to really focus on it, hone in on it, and build that, that palette, that sound palette you know, from, from bottom up. I mean, th that head choice, it sounds to me like you're going for a pretty punchy short sound with a lot of like low end. Is that kind of the vibe? Yeah, man. Cause it's like, you know, I'm a church guy, right? So at some point of the show with all the pocket that I play, I'm going to play something fast. <laughs> 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 so you want it to be punchy. You want it to be quick and you want to be able to get around. And when you're playing these big venues, you don't want it to get a little lost in the sauce. So, you know, that quick punchy sound is a, is a whole situation. <laughs> What's the kickhead? Uh, EMAD 2. EMAD 2 kickhead is a two-ply. It's maybe my favorite kickhead. Uh, I've been playing with that kickhead for a really long time. I haven't switched up or changed at all. So the EMAD 2, yeah, that's, uh, that's my go-to. And then do you, you put extra padding inside or do you keep it? more open uh there is something called the kick pillow pro that mm -hmm. thing um before that i was using just a normal evans pillow um and before that it was just a, i used to tell guys go get me the cheapest pillow you can find at walmart dollar 99 not so cushiony super uncomfortable trying to sleep but it will work great in kick um but yeah now not that kick pillow pro is like a go-to for me now. I don't know what technology they're using. I've never taken the time to study it, but whatever they got going on, those guys are perfect. They're doing great. That's like, uh, if I remember correctly, that's like a heavy pillow, right? It's like a brick almost. Yeah, it has a lot of weight on it, but when you sit it inside the kick drum, you don't feel the weight in the follow-through. You know what I mean? Like, you can still feel all the wind push through the kick drum, which I think is probably 
the the most triumphant part of being a drummer is when you lay into that kick, being able to feel that wind of follow through. That's just a beautiful feeling. So somehow, even with that heavy pillow, <clears throat> they were able to, you know, still not take away from that. You know? Yeah, man, that's the literal reason why I became a drummer was the bass drum sound of marching drum lines. Just the feeling yeah. of a mile away, like the hitting you in the chest. Like, oh, whatever that is, that's magic. I want some of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can make me feel something from 100 yards away. <laughs> it's the thunder. I tell people all the time, it's like, you know, I tune my, my rag times in like almost thirds. So it sounds like harmony, a three-part harmony. Mm. My times, way lower. That's just thunder. Because I tell people, like, when you go to that four time, that combination, you want people to feel that feel like, oh, wow, I can feel that in my chest from so far away. You know, whether the mics are up or whether the mics are down, you know, you still want that thunder to be there. So, yeah, it's all about the thunder. So does that same sound transfer to your home studio or do you have to make adjustments? Uh, it transfers, but the miking is where it got interesting. Mm. Um, because... Well, miking, and then you'll understand the four time. My bottom heads to my four times. I had to tune um, because the resonance was just a little too long, um, and it was carrying over just a little too much for this small space. Um, so, miking, I had to figure out the best ways to mic the drums that I would get the tones that I know were there. Um, and then with the four times, I just had to tune the bottom, the resonant head, just a little differently. So it wouldn't give that like at the end of a at the end of a hit, you know. So it's it's a it's an adjustment for sure. But you know, I was able to to figure it out. And like I said, I took some time and like really tried some different things. And it's so funny to send drums to people and they say, "Yo, man, could you send me the raw drums with no effects?" And I was like, "That's exactly what I sent you. <laughs> raw drums with no effects." They're like, wow, this is raw sound. I'm like, this is that's the raw sound because I took time and like really, really, really like, where am I putting these mics at? You know, and you know, it's not but so many places, but am I micing it from the top corner of the drum? Is the mic in the center of the drum? Is it coming from the top right side corner? Like, I really like messed around with that with my overheads. You know, am I only trying to capture cymbals? So do I mic him under the cymbals? Do I mic him over the cymbals? Um, and with a room mic, do I mic the room mic further away? Do I mic it right on top of the drums? Uh, my hi-hat mic is probably the one thing. I never mic hi-hats from the top anymore. Uh, I always mic them from the bottom, but then you got to figure out how not to get a bunch of snare bleed. So where you place that mic is everything. Um, same with snare mics, like, and so on and so forth. It goes on until you've gotten through all the drums but I was able to really take the time to be like, this is what I want to do. Let's get the cleanest possible sound. And uh, this year, I think we're going to hear my drums on some, some pretty good records. Can't talk about any of them. Some, some pretty major artists, some legends. I got to work with some legends. So, you know, I'm wondering, I've heard a couple final edits. And I was like, oh, they didn't do much to my raw sound. You know, they might have added some compression. But, um... You know, it feels good to know that the raw sound, my sound, is what was actually on the record and what they're allowing to stay on the record. So, you know, a lot of work, but well worth it. Man, that goes against all the kind of dogma that you can't get good drum sounds in a bedroom. Oh, man, listen, I just put up some padding around the top part of the wall because I was like, I still want some live reflection in the room and... You'd be surprised at what you can get. And I'm and dude, I'm not running the like ten thousand dollar interfaces. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm literally like, you know, this was put together in a month. It was a month's worth of ordering from Sweetwater, ordering from companies that I was already affiliated and partnered with. And like just taking the time to study the positioning and the gear. And I I can't be happier with what I got from it. Did you have to adjust your your dynamics coming from a big stage to a small room? That's a practice. Yeah, it's a practice. So with the live show decks, like when I'm recording for an artist that they're going to use a live show, like you got to pump yourself up because it's like, there's nobody in this room 
But you don't want it to sound like it was recorded in the room. You want it to sound like, you know, it's at a live venue and it's in front of a crowd. So with those, I always do more takes. Like, you know, I might do just a couple takes just to absorb what's happening. And then after that, I do like the show takes where like I'm all sweaty when I'm done and I'm like, okay, that was cool show. Um, and then like with the studio stuff, that just all depends on the record I'm recording on. Um, I recently recorded something for John where he had to do, we did a John Lennon remake for one of his uh, recent performances. And, uh, you know, those drums, totally different sounds, total different approach to how the drum is played. So for that, it was super light. It was not a lot of heavy playing because the tone of the drums came from the, the actual attack of them, which was not a heavy attack at all. Um, so that is, you know, a thing, uh, I would have a few people have told me, like, I'll send them, you know, a take, like, you know, approval takes like, Hey, here's take one and take two approve, please. And send it back to me or let me know what you want me to change. And I'll send you files. A few people have sent them back and said, yo man, play like you play, play hard. <laughs> like, really? I want to feel the energy. So, you know, my neighbors get a show at that <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 kind of like you know relative to what the song is and, and what the feel is. Man, what does that mean to you when someone says, "Give me, give me the energy"? I'm I'm afraid of overhitting symbols all the time. Um, it means to me that they clearly have seen me play live, and it means that they need me to tap into it, and I'm okay with that. Um. The great thing is that when I started playing Sabian, I have to say again, because back years and years ago, I played Sabian exclusively. And now um, endorsing them and, and making them move over there is one of the greatest decisions I've ever made. Um, bashing on cymbals has been fun because I'm like reacclimating to this sound that I haven't felt in so long, which, you know, provokes new levels of creativity. And, and it's just so cool, man. So... You know, the great thing is when people would say that, I'd be like, yes, I get to actually play and I get to actually just bang on everything as hard as I want. And that's what they actually want. So, yeah, it, it, it was cool. Like I said, my neighbors, they really got a show. A couple <laughs> of, like, is that you playing drums? I was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no clue what you're talking about. You heard drums? No, it's not <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to stay incognito. <laughs> Well, tell me about that second snare then. So what, what sound are you looking for by having a second snare on your kit? Uh, usually it's deep. Usually it's super deep and muddy. Um, I would say it is the Motown snare. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, you know, I hate it. This is a pet peeve of mine. When people say the James Brown snare, I'm like, but James Brown's drummers, Doublefield and, and Jabo Starks, they were pitchy. They were like up there, you know what I mean? It was super tight. Um, so let's not do that. Let's not call it that, you know. Um, but it was definitely the Motown sound. It's it's the that super deep kind of sludgy dish, as I would call it. Mm. You know, what I mean? but that's usually if I have a second snare. If there's only two snares, like my main snare, what I call the crack, and then my second snare is always going to be just a low tune, super deep something I could lay into when that vibe is necessary. And then if I add a third snare, that's going to be the super high-pitched piccolo sound. But that's, you know, just depends on the gig. So how many songs in a night require that gushy sound? The John Legend show? Maybe three. Okay, so it's not a ton. Yeah, and the Jill Scott show, whenever I choose to throw it in there, because we tend to play different music every show. Um, we tend to kind of vamp in different ways every show. Um, it's funny because with my band, I was using a second snare, and then eventually I stopped. I was like, you know what? I'm not playing it at all. Um, it's just not as necessary because the tunes that we're playing don't really require it. So I was able just to strike that from the setup. But every gig I've done pretty much over the years has always required that deep snare for something. You know what I mean? Even if it's just a little accent that's played with the tom. Uh, it's always some reason to have it there, so I always make sure to. And you have a trigger on that one as well. Sometimes, so uh, I did Chromio uh, 2019. 
Um, I toured with the uh, the funk band, funk duo Chromio, which we actually recorded their album that's out right now. Um, and that I played the second snare, the deep snare, the majority of the show. Um, I think I only played my main snare on like three or four songs in that show. Um, but the cool thing about the deep snare was like we talked about those tones and combining the natural tone of the drum with the triggered uh, sample. We I had all their triggered sounds from their albums and they really blended the best with that deep snare. So on that tour, I actually played. Yeah, I actually played the, the second snare the most. And if people go listen to their album that's out now, the live album. Yeah, you'll hear it. That deep snare is on almost every song. So why didn't you put that in the main spot? Didn't feel right. <laughs> I was like, let's see if it feels right playing it right here. Just then, so I was like, I need to play it over. Uh, that's funny. Everybody laughed at me about that. They were like, dude, why don't you just move it? I was like, it doesn't feel correct. Like, the vibe will change if I move the snare. <laughs> Interesting. So what is your, your, your setup for your band then? Is it any different? Oh, a little different. So my setup for my band is still uh, six and a half by 14 main snare. Um, still a 22 inch kick. Uh, the difference is I'm playing two up, two down. So my rack times are 12 and 13. My floor times are 16 and 18. Mm. So it's just a big run of thunder. Uh, you know, to, to do any type of fills around the kit in completion. Uh, it's just super deep and, and what I call beautiful thunder. Um, and then symbols wise, no splashes on my, in my band, uh, just everything 19 and bigger, <laughs> 19 mm-hmm. and above. So really big. What are the models you're using symbol wise? Um, so man, so like I said, I'll say man, I love the artisan stuff. That stuff is just, it's like luscious and sweet. Um, the HHX, the HHX uh, legacy stuff is really incredible. I love those crashes. Um, I'm using the HHX Groove Ride. is like my favorite ride right now. It's my go-to. Um, I also have a prototype that is like a ride crash that I'm not sure if I'm going to talk about. But anyway, <laughs> and if you ever see pictures of my, my show setups, that ride is in there. But I play it as a crash and sometimes ride on the bell. Um, and then, like, they have a really great stack series that I use uh, a few of those stacks. And, you know, it's but that's the majority. A lot of the HHX Legacy, uh, the regular HHX and the HHX Evolution uh, is a big thing mixed in with some artisan crashes and hi-hats. Yeah, it's kind of a, a nice little plethora. As are, you using, are you using big hi-hats? My hi-hats are 15. Okay, for everything? Yeah, yeah, and then with the with John's tour, I have two. So I have my main hi hats, which is just my normal artisan hi hats to match the type. Like just when you open them, they get sludgy, and you close them, you tighten right back up. And then I have on my right, uh, my remote hat is the eighteen inch stick hats. Those are the ones with the holes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, those it's so weird because. Uh, it really makes you think about album sounds, right? Because some producers use multiple hi-hat sounds. So now on John's tour, I was able to actually emulate a lot of the double hi-hat sounds that I was hearing on the records, which made it interesting when it comes to keeping my foot on both pedals at the same time. That's a whole other thing. Oh, wait, they both have pedals? <laughs> and that's the thing people would ask, like, how are you opening and closing both? And literally, I would just like have my foot pivoted and like lift heel for one, lift toe for the other, or just straight down for keeping them both closed. Um, yeah, it's uh, I was working pretty hard. So that's nuts. That, <laughs> uh, the sick hats as a remote hat, and you know, for some songs I would just primarily play those. Uh, other songs I would play both, um, and then of course I would play my mains on some. How did you work out the, the choreography? Was that like in rehearsals or do you have to do it ahead of time? Or I mean, how'd you get through that? In rehearsals, I always tell drummers, and the best thing you can do is stop and think. Um, I think that it's funny because uh, there was a time when Jill Scott didn't have a percussionist and she wanted me to be a percussionist. So she was like, I want you to play percussion too, but I don't want to do this one drummer. 
Um, it's the same thing she said when I became a musical director. I want you to be the musical director, but I do not want to use my front. And I was like, you know, that's a really great way to put that. Um, so I always say, like, take a second and just think about what you're trying to do because our bodies are cap more capable than we sometimes give credit. So there were things that I would have to play claps, bongos, and be like, that's the track. But I also have to play the groove as the drummer. And it's like, well, how am I going to get my left hand this way and back to the snare? Well, maybe my left hand never leaves this way. Maybe my right hand plays I had in snare while my left hand is playing bongos, times, whatever else. And then where's the best place to put these rolling beat drum pads for claps and snaps where I can also, you know, have that. And it got, it gets pretty, pretty surgical, man. Like I play now, even with John, I play the uh, uh, electric kick as well. So the rolling one, that's just like the pedal. Mm -hmm. uh, I play that right next to my actual kick drum pedal. So I can play a groove and play the sub nature of it. Wow, because my feet is like jumping back and forth from one to the other. Um, literally, man, I, I really worked out some pretty cool choreography, um, which sometimes feels a bit unreal. Mm -hmm. But most part, like I said, I always tell guys, just take a second, think about what you're trying to do. And then in rehearsals, literally, I would say, like, you know, with Jill, I'm the MD, so I kind of get to run the song as many times as I want to. So I can be like, all right, guys, let's do it again. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm try this other thing. <laughs> so, with John, I would just ask Man Man, like, yo, bro, can we run that one more time for me? I just want to see if I can figure this other thing out. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'm looking at Dom Thomas, the percussionist, and saying, yo, bro, I can't cover those claps. I've tried every different possible way to do it. I need you to get that. And he'll be like, oh, perfect. I got a free hand. That's not doing anything, so I can do that. Other times, I'm like, yo, I got it. Don't even worry about it. I figured out how to move properly around the kit where I can actually cover all parts. So it takes some practice. So is that choreography permanent now? Like if you had to recall, what did we do on this song? Will, it just, will you be there for it or would it take a minute to figure it out? So memory is a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's permanent. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty there. Uh, it sucks when something changes because you got to deprogram. Um, but even with that, you know, you get certain formulas that just work. Um, like with the hi hat thing, I'm like, you know, you can't have the pedals directly next to each other. I need my remote pedal a little bit higher so that as I'm pivoting my foot, I'm touching both pedals and just lifting heel or toe is what opens or closes either one of them. Um, little tricks of the trade like that you find out are like, okay, those are things that are going to help me actually do my job at the highest level of efficiency. So, you know, it's a, it's a thing. Muscle memory is there, but if I had to change something, I could figure it out. Now, is there any, um, any like percussion loops or on playback that you have to navigate around? Very little with John. None with Joe Scott. Joe Scott... Okay. Don't run any tracks on history. So everything you hear is what you see. Um, which can get interesting because sometimes she wants a track but doesn't want the track, if you know what I mean. Doesn't mm. want we have to become a track. Um with John, I think we're almost to the point now where there are no drum or percussion sounds in any of these. Um, which is very different from where we started at. You know, when we started, there was drums in almost every song when I started back in two thousand eight. And, you know, it just evolved over time. It was like I would add something and then me and Man Man would talk about it and say, all right, so let's try it without it. Let's see if it still punches the same if I'm actually playing those sounds um, to the point now where we're like, if there's an album sound that is a drum sound, I usually just trigger that, take it out of the track. Um, and it's the same with our percussionist, Don Thomas. He does the same thing. Like if there's something that he can cover so that they can get out of the track, get out of the box, then he'll cover it. So I'm at the point now where in John's show, very little drum stuff going on in the track. Like, I think Greenlight still has it because it's like that filtered drum, that, that filtered drum loop that runs in the background. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, that's about it. 
I mean, that keeps you uh, keeps you occupied on stage. <laughs> no, I don't know if I call it job security or if I just call it it's a good time. I stay, I stay very busy, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think I probably talked about it before, but just the idea of using triggers. I think every drummer, even playing club dates, I, I take a kick trigger almost everywhere I go these days. It just it just makes the sound just bigger and it's easy now. I mean, I use a little TM2 module, which you can throw in your, your hardware bag. I think and that's it, something that everyone should consider. I don't know if the TM1 ever got released, but um, I have a TM1 stop pedal, which is also one of the ways that I would do it like locally. And I did local stuff. I would take the TM1, trigger that to my main kick and just have the super beefy low end uh, sound and people will be like, dude, how's your kick drum sounds? I'm like, oh man, I have no idea. It's <laughs> not the wrong it works. It's all in the touch. <laughs> get you a Mapex drum kit. That's the only way to make it happen. <laughs> all right. Well, I only have one more question for you. I'm reviving the original question for this podcast. What was your first snare drum? Oh, man. My first snare drum. Let me go back. Or what was your first kit? My first actual kit that wasn't like a toy kit uh, was this is you would know this. A lot of drummers would not do that because you're you're one of those a nerd. <laughs> you <laughs> can say it. <laughs> You're, you're a very studied um, studied musician. You're going to know this. My first drum kit was a gift from a friend of my mother's at her job. Um, she, my mom used to work in New York at the World Trade Center when I was a kid. And uh, it was an Olympic uh, yellow oyster finish, which that was... Olympic or Olympia, whichever one. It was the company before Premier was Premier. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a three-piece jazz kit. Um, I still have that snare at my parents' house, actually. It's there. Are kidding? Sadly, the kit got left in the storage unit, and I never saw it again, like, in moving. My family moved a bunch when I was a kid, so one of the storage units, it got left in, and I never saw it again. But um, yeah, that drum set was my first like walk downstairs Christmas, and there's a drum kit. Um, yeah, I think that my parents were really excited because it had been given to them to give to me. Mm. Uh, um, like I said, my mom's friend at work, whose husband for some reason stopped playing drums. But um, yeah, that was that was the first kit. It was super beautiful. I like if I could bring back any kit from my past. It would be that drum set. Right? Mm. Anyone listening got a lead on some Olympic? <laughs> what was it? White white marine pearl? It was a, it was a yellow it yellow was like, marine pearl. It was beautiful, man. And there's some pictures somewhere of me in my robe and underwear on Christmas morning sitting on that drum set. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, will never be surfaced to the internet. But uh, yeah, that drum set was for sure my first like first actual drum kit. Nice. How old were you? Ooh, had to be six, seven. Okay. Like so you started early. Yeah. I know. Because um, not too long after that, my parents brought me like a Pearl Forum kit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Now, which color? It was only black, white, or red back then, right? You got, the, um, <laughs> <laughs> you got the black one, you said? Yeah, the black one, man. super deep sounds, and you know, it wasn't even real wood. I don't think it was like that prefab, like particle thing going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge badge, long lugs. I know those drums. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what they were. So that that was the kit that came after that. But yeah, that that little three piece jazz kit was definitely my first one. Killer! I want to keep an eye out for them. Then Olympic drums. Anyone, give us a lead. Uh, okay, so. What should we look out for next from you for the remainder of this year? Uh, well, in the terms of gigging, so John Legend is doing Vegas residencies all year. Um, we're doing one in April, one in August, and another in October. All like eight shows at a time. Mm. 
that's going to be pretty cool. That's that Planet Hollywood at Zappos Theater. That'll be fun and exciting. It's going to be a really great show. Um, and then in between that, we'll be touring. And with all of that going on with John Legend, I'll also be doing Rashid Williams and the LFJ Orchestra music. And my band will be traveling. So, yeah, man, look out for that. Look out for the LFJ Orchestra album, which will come this year. Also, look out for my album, Scenes for 2020. That's going to come this year. Oh, wait a minute. Is that the one you said it's in the can? Yeah, yeah, that one. That one's done. It's done. It's completely done. Uh, I think I just wanted to, I didn't want to just drop it as a, a normal like song and song album because I wanted it to be an experience. So that one might come to cities more as an art exhibit than it does an album. We are, I got a really great creative director here in Florida that she's incredible at what she does. And, uh, and we've been talking over some really great ideas of how to properly present it. So that it's not just like, hey, Rashid did this little scenes from 2020. I'm going to go back and listen to it. No, this is the only way I can hear the album is if I go to the art exhibit into the incubator and experience. So, yeah, that's, you know, we're trying to get that going this year as well. So I'm going to stay working. Bring it to Pittsburgh. I want to experience that thing. Um, please send me send me some spots that that would down for that kind of thing. We're looking and scouting different locations now because you know here in Florida it's actually more easy than I thought it was. There's a lot of spaces that can properly uh, handle what we're trying to do. Um, but I was thinking like I'm from New Jersey and I was like I don't know any space there. Mm. Um, so now it's like kind of looking for pop up spaces and do it like as a pop up, you know maybe three days here, three days there. And it's like, you know, do it as a full exhibit. People come in and experience it and, and walk away with something more than just listening to an album and saying, oh, that was a nice album. And then it goes back into my iTunes catalog and I never go back to it again. All right. Well, we'll talk off air about that because I have some ideas. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Thanks, Rashid. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's been great. That's it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Rashid. Definitely follow him on Instagram. Um, keep track of what he's doing with his own band and some of his other projects that are in the works. And if you get a chance to go check him out live with John Legend or Jill Scott, uh, you will not be disappointed. So if you dig the show, please head over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating, drop a review. Also, you can always email me at any time, mike at drumfactordirect.com with any of your guest requests or topic matter you'd like for me to discuss on the show. And until next week, have a good one. Stay warm if you're on the East Coast. Stay safe. See ya.